0: The or the meditation on the greatness of Hashem, and how that affects the godly soul, moving it to experiences of fear and love. And then we spoke about experiences of fear, and how the fear um, is becomes a motivation to um, turn away from the evil condemned by the Torah and by the Rabbis. And now we're ready to move to talking about the love and the fulfillment of positive mitzvahs. Okay. So. To refresh one's memory that the idea is that the love being generated is the response that the godly soul has to one's awareness of the greatness of Hashem and that awareness is cultivated in that meditative contemplative, contemplative state. And the idea being is that there's actually a, a tension between the emotional experience and the contemplative state. Right, like The contemplative state is really not so emotional, but... That emotional pressure builds and builds until it bursts and the person then has an emotional experience, okay? So now I want to talk about, so again, we're talking about a love that is actually felt viscerally, right? the Persons you spoke about in previous class, right? How love actually has a physical experience to it. Um, What I want to do now talk about more is about the psychological experience of love. Um, As is understood by Chassidus. And... um, to the degree that we get through that, then we're going to start talking about mitzvahs and how mitzvahs play a role relative to this love. Okay. Now, the first thing, um, the, the, the first thing to understand is that there are many, many experiences that a person can have that will be grouped together, broadly, and called love in Chassidus. Okay. That being said, it's important different to differentiate between two things. We're gonna call real love, and we're going to call um, something that seems like love, but is not real love. Okay. So we're gonna use an analogy to explain this. The Analogy is as follows. So There's a person, they have a fire, and they would like to put the fire out. extinguish the fire, and they have a large jug of clear liquid. So they pour the clear liquid on the fire with the intent of putting the fire out. But unbeknownst to them, this this liquid is gasoline. So instead of putting the fire out, what does it do? It makes the fire bigger, it burns hotter. So now this person is even more desperate to put the fire out. So they reach for another jug of clear liquid. Again, not realizing that this is gasoline instead of water, and they attempt to put the fire out again at which point the fire gets even bigger, which makes them more desperate to put out the fire. So they reach for more jugs of clear liquid. Now, assuming that this person never realizes that the liquid is gasoline, right? Uh, And assuming they have an infinite supply of gasoline, um, at what point do they stop? When they're dead. Right, no, no, when they're dead, That's, that's correct. That's correct, okay? That is, going, that is our analogy for what Chassidus calls love. All love fits in that, per, in that framework. I'm going to explain to you what each thing represents. Anything that does not work like that, Chassidus would say, is not really love. Okay, so we're going to go through step by step. First off, what does the fire represent? Fire, the fire represents the desire for closeness. I'm going to come back to what we mean by closeness, but right now it's a desire for closeness. What is the pouring of what the person thinks is water, but is actually gasoline? That is attaining closeness. Now, what's important to understand is that in attaining closeness, what does the person think is going to happen? Their desire for going back to the analogy of the fire. What do they think is going to happen by pouring this liquid onto the fire? It's going to like, um, Satisfied, right? That if I have a desire for closeness, once I achieve closeness, my desires will be satisfied and the burning desire will go away. That makes sense? Okay, but in the analogy, what does a person pour? They pour gasoline. So what happens? If the desire is represented by the fire and the pouring of the liquid represents getting... The fire represents desire for closeness. The pouring of liquid represents actually attaining closeness. What is attaining closeness do, how does it affect the person? It, them. It, it, it makes them desire more. It makes them desire more closeness. So then what do they do? They achieve greater closeness, which then... What would that then do? If you go back to the analogy, you keep pouring gasoline on fire to try and put it out. What's going to happen to the fire? The fire gets bigger. So the desire for closeness keeps getting more intense. You achieve greater closeness, which instead of satisfying the desire for closeness, intensifies the desire for closeness. You wouldn't want it more. Right, and then what happens? You try to get closer still. And this will continue until you literally cannot contain the experience and you have some kind of a, like, I don't know, nervous breakdown, nervous breakdown some sort of, like, ecstatic experience and you, you, lose, your, you lose your awareness. So something, something very, very dramatic would happen. Okay. Now. Do you love... uh, Someone mentioned their favorite food, please. We'll use that as an example. Anyone want to volunteer their favorite food? What? Mango. Mango. Do you love mango, given what we just described? So, do you feel desire for mango? Yeah. Do you then eat mango as a way of satisfying that desire for mango? Can you eat a sufficient mango, at which point the desire for mango goes away? Yes. So is that love. Yeah. Yeah. See how that works? If you can satisfy a desire, it might feel like love, but it is not love. Love is a desire for closeness, which is only intensified upon achieving the desired closeness. Love is a desire for closeness that is only intensified on on achieving the desired closeness. So I desire to be close, I attain the desired closeness, and instead of feeling satisfied, I now just desire closeness even more intensely. And so that re- keeps circling back on itself. And eventually, it consumes the person. Right? Doesn't that sound very negative? Love sounds like bad thing. Well, why is it negative? Because you end up dead? Everyone dies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we could say the following. Is love something that consumes a person, then? Is love, therefore, a very powerful and dangerous force in life? is love also can be very constructive. Yeah. Okay. Like fire, right? But we're in this muscle, like in the analogy, we're not saying that love is like fire. We're saying love is this like whole dynamic. That's right. But this whole dynamic is not necessarily a good dynamic. Why not? Back to the fact that you doesn't fit. Well, that's if all you have is love. Right. In other words, there's a difference. This is a very important. There's a difference between talking about love itself, and there's talking about love in the context of other things. For instance, let's say I have love for a person, and all I have is love, then I would become totally consumed and obsessed and whatever. Right. But if I have other things than love, let's say I have, for instance, respect. So what might also feeling respect do? Right, right, and then there's realizing like certain degree of closeness is unwanted, right? And so I just have to live with an unfulfilled desire. Okay, this is by the way why people are uncomfortable with love. The real reason people are uncomfortable with love is like this: having love me having love in a. Well, I don't know. If the world, I'll use this word. I'm not thrilled with this word. We'll call it healthy. Living with love in a healthy way means living with unfulfilled desire. Because if all you only have desires that you can fulfill, then those aren't love, right? And if you're just gonna let the fact that your desire for closeness demands of you to get further closeness and then the closeness demands more, makes you have a stronger desire for closeness and you let that consume you, right? Then you end up being totally consumed and you end up being totally dysfunctional. And I mean, people can get like that, right? If you want to, right, part of of the difficulty of love is if you want to have love and like as part of a life, not something that totally consumes your life, you're going to have to accept on a certain level that there will be unfulfilled desire and be okay with that. Okay, so this is an uncomfortable question. I'm not actually expecting anyone to answer this, but do you love anybody? And what would that mean? Are there people in my life that I feel a desire to be Closer to. And if I would get closer to them, what would happen? Just want to be even and if I got even closer, I would still want to be. And that would never burn itself out. Now, are there other things that might limit the kind of closeness? Like, for instance, some degree of closeness is... Um, inappropriate or some kind of closeness is unwanted right or the closeness makes demands on other important things right it, it consumes my energy and time and i have to, right so i might have to have other experiences and a maturity and values that might temper and and compartmentalize the place that love has in my life but that's what love that, that's how love works okay can you love fame can you love being famous Well, what would it mean to love being famous? It means that you feel the desire to be famous. And once you're famous, that causes you to feel the desire to be? More famous. And then once you're more famous, you have a desire to be? More famous. Okay. People that live like that, on the scale of several decades, what usually happens to them? They usually... Why? Because, like, they're trying to, like, reach something that they can't fully, like, get. And it just, like, it consumes them. Right. That's one possibility. There's another. There's, that's one. So either, in other words, they keep reaching they, they can never have enough fame. They can never have enough fame. And it totally consumes them. And that, like, ends in disaster. Oh, or possibility, they you know? just want attention. And that's the way that they get it. And that's a healthy way to get it if you're actually getting something like Oh so it's not uh, healthy if what what what's one second, what's this is going to be let's put the getting attention thing aside for a second. Another thing that could happen is that a person gets to a point where they start to realize that what they're really after, what they're really desiring is not actually fame. They just associated with fame and the fame doesn't do it and it never will. And then they kind of have a kind of thing where like they want to like restart their life and reset their life. That's also a thing that happens. Now here's the thing There are many things in life that we have desires for, but they're not really love. And that's because those desires can really be fulfilled. We can have enough. Like when we're hungry, we eat and we're satiated. As a human being, do you need to have some degree of attention, some degree of place in society in order to, is that like a psychological need we have just like we have a need for food? Okay, yeah. But that need can be fulfilled, right? So there's a very big difference between like a kind of need that gets fulfilled and something that and, and this experience of love. Okay. Um, now, as human beings, we end up with something that feels like love, where we we desire something, and no matter how much we have, we always want more. And we always want more. And we always want more. Um. But that thing doesn't even exist in reality. Okay, so go back to the example of the fame. The person the person who wants to be famous and then they get famous, they want to be more famous, they want to be more famous. Like, there's an obvious ridiculousness this. Like at some point, right, you've maxed out on the amount of fame that could exist, right? And is it really the case that this person needs every single human being on earth to know about them and that's why they're not satisfied? Or if they're not satisfied, is because in some sense, they're chasing a fantasy, something that isn't even real. Probably because of a misinterpretation of some need that they have, but whatever. Okay, but now let's contrast this with a person. How many layers are there to you? How much depth is there to you? How much nuance is there to you? That's, that, that's really profound, right? Person, person has layer upon layer, depth upon depth. So if a person desires to be closer and closer to another person, there really is something there to desire. Right? If I'm as close as I am, to say my wife, as close as I am, there's still a level of her being that I'm not close to. And if I get that close, there'll still be a layer beyond that and a layer beyond that and a layer beyond that. So in that case, the, the, the love is, at, is not just it, love. has a reality to it because what you desire, it really is never ending. You can never have a, it. It never is exhausting. So there's, this, there's a sense in which there are things that that might feel like love, but they don't really feel like love because you have enough and then you're done. There are things that might feel like love because, what you're, because it's a fantasy. There, there, it, 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 you're, you're chasing a mirage. And then there's things that are actually love because what you desire, you could always really be closer to. And so no amount of closeness could ever be enough because there really is another layer of closeness, another dimension of closeness. And that's something that can exist between people. That's something that exists between a person and God. It's something that can exist between a person and maybe a value or a truth or an idea. It's, it's not something that can exist with most things. Because you need that thing to have a layer upon layer upon layer, aspect upon aspect, that no matter how close you are, there's always another way to be closer. Okay, yes? Does that mean that if a couple gets divorced, they never really love each other because there's an end to the love? No. Something can end something without it having, it without it ending itself. In other words, like this. That process, right? That I said, right, with the love, I keeps going. if a person realizes, and people do this. A person is feeling love. And they realize at a certain point, I, I, no matter how close I am to this person, I will never get it. I will never have it all. And they say, so there's like a built-in pain in love. And they decide, I don't want to have pain. So they, sh- so, they t- so they stop the love. But that stopping the love is, 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 is not that the love ends. They've stopped it. Okay. This, by the way, happens. Um, I, I don't know if you've encountered this phenomenon learning Torah, but there's like a stage in which you start start learning Torah, and you feel like there's all this stuff I don't know, and I'm going to learn it, I'm going to figure it out. And the rabbi and the rabbis, and they know they have it all figured out, and they're going to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn, and then I'll have it all figured out. I'll see all the pieces fit together. At some point, if you're wise enough, what you start to realize is no matter how much you have it all figured out, there's always another layer where it's still just as confusing. So now there's an interesting question. So let's just talk about, not love of Hashem, let talk about love of learning. What does it mean to love learning Torah? It's something that you like, always want to continue doing, because like you said, like you recognize that. I don't, I, I, I want to be very clear, I don't mean love the, the act of like sitting and learning. I mean like, Learning Torah is the way you connect to Torah. What does it mean to love Torah? Let's put it that way. What do it mean to love Torah? To love that it connects to Hashem? No. Okay. Like, I don't think I really. I mean, yes, that's true. It's a very chsic thing to say, but like. <laughs> you learn something, you don't really understand it fully. Do you desire to understand it? if you desire to understand it, so understanding things is the way you're close to ideas. That make sense? Closeness to ideas is through understanding them, through making sense, they make sense to you. So I learned something that doesn't make sense to me, I don't understand it, it's confusing, and I wanna, I wanna, I wanna bridge the gap between me, so I wanna really grasp, I really want it to make sense, I really wanna like have, figure it out. Okay. And I feel like at that moment, if I can just figure it out, that will like satisfy something in me, right? But what happens when you figure it out? you discover that it's actually like the little bit that you figured out, as much as that makes sense, it just exposes you to how much other stuff you don't know. You don't know. So you're like, okay, now I've got to figure this thing out. So, you have, right? so the closeness creates a new desire, right? And then at some point you realize that this is not going to end. You could live for a thousand years and be as wise as Moshe Rabbeinu and you're still not going to figure it all out. Do you then say, well, if that's the case, then what's the point? Or, or do you say, it doesn't matter. Even if I can never know it all, every little bit I can know, I need to know. Okay. Now go back to a person, right? Do you love a friend? What does that mean? Are you ever going to be, are you ever going to like truly know them, truly be unified with them, truly get them at every level? Is that ever gonna happen? Does that awareness make you stop desiring to get to be just a little bit closer? If it does, then you're stopping the love. If it doesn't, then you're continuing to love them. But that's an entirely different thing than, say, for instance, a lot of people what they enjoy about Torah is the same thing you enjoy about a mango. Like eating a mango is an enjoyable experience, but things that are enjoyable experiences, like you, you, you get like you, you get enough and then you're done because you're like. Call it sensory overload, whatever you want to call it, right? So if I enjoy learning Torah for the intellectual stimulation of it, how much Torah do I need to learn? However much I learned, I got my intellectual stimulation, right? And then I don't love learning Torah. So like, like, lo- it's important to understand, like, like when we're talking about love, we're talking about something, and this is this is that's really binding you. The the the, it's not just that love is a desire for closeness, because it's a desire for closeness that once you get more closeness, what you just desire further closeness, the experience of love is itself a kind of a bond that you have, to the point that your sense of who you are becomes intermingled with the sense of who you love. Which leads to a very important point. Let's use it with a person. If you love somebody, are you willing to do things for them that you don't like doing? Do you just like them? If you love somebody, are you willing to do things for them that you don't like doing? do you just start to like the things because you love the person Ah, so right. So, so if we, if we, we unpack the words. If I have a desire to be close to this person, and these are things that bring me close to those, that person, then aren't those now things that I like doing? Exactly. On some level, in some sense, yeah. right? So the notion of doing something for somebody else, even though I don't like doing it, is, is, is actually an indi- indication that there's a lack of love. Okay, there are levels to this. It's not all black and white. But the more you love a person, the less you have a sense of what's for me and what's for them. That's what you said last. Time. That's right. But now I'm trying to like back to get to that place. The, 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 Go back to the example of if a person really loves Torah, what would happen if there was something in the Torah that doesn't make sense? In like a very deep way. Like in a really, really deep way. Like something that make, doesn't make, like, like ethically, it seems ethically important. And they love Torah, what would happen? How would they experience that? That they have a problem with the Torah? How they? Like, what would that be like? Wouldn't they just want to unpack it? Well, there's an expression that, that the, 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 you find in some Kabbalistic literature about the Torah being in exile. If the Torah is good and the goodness of the Torah is not seen, in fact, the Torah comes off as negative, then it's not just you feel frustrated that you don't understand the Torah. In a sense, you feel like the Torah itself is somehow in exile. It's somehow imprisoned. It's somehow trapped. Like Again, if imagine, imagine, imagine you, you, you really love somebody and you see they're you, you, you acting in a very negative way. And right? if you love them, you don't think, oh, that's an evil person. You feel like the good in them is somehow not coming out. Right, so you don't see it. You don't have a problem with them. It it, love changes the more we love. Changes radically how we experience, not just what we're willing to do. How we experience others. Does this make sense? Okay. And again, I'm speaking love on the, on the highest, the purest levels because what the chapter's going to go on later saying, okay, what happens when a person can't get to this level? right? That's real. The chapter is really going to be mostly about that, but it's more so what we're talking about. So talking about a person, they contemplate the greatness of Hashem to the point that it has an impact where they feel a desire to be close to Hashem and the kind of desire that no matter how close they get, they're just going to feel the need to be. Even closer. And even knowing and even knowing that they will never be able to get close enough, because there's no such thing as close enough, that itself that does not weaken the intensity of their desire. If anything, it strengthens it. Okay? Um that's a very intense kind of an experience, right? And, um the Rambam, when he describes the mitzvah of, of loving Hashem, he says, what is the love that a person is supposed to have? And he describes a person who becomes, obs- he describes it from the sex of a man, a man who becomes completely obsessed with a woman to the point that he is literally lovesick. He's not able to function. It's consumes him. Now, uh, is that like the, the, the minimum requirement for love? No, but <laughs> that would be the ideal. Okay, now... Why does the godly why, why does the why does the godly soul feel this intense desire to be close to Hashem? What is it about Hashem that 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 has such a pull on the godly soul? Is that that what that greatness that we discussed before, right? It's this sense of the greatness of Hashem that's eliciting this love. Okay, and so how intense is this going to be? All things being equal the more profound and clear the, the sense of the Shem's greatness, the more intense that desire is going to be. Okay, now what do you do if you have such a desire? Like, If you have a desire to be close to somebody, what do you do? You try to get close to them, right? How do you get close to Hashem? So the love is already a kind of a closeness. There's a deep level of, of bonding and identification with. And Okay, but like how do you actually get close to Hashem? Doing things that you know, he appreciate. So, yes. Yeah. No. It depends. There are three levels of doing mitzvahs because I love Hashem. One is not really mentioned in Tanya at all. Um, The second is mentioned in Tanya, and the third is also mentioned in Tanya. The first one is like maybe you could read it into some passages which would you say if I love somebody then I will do the things that make them happy okay um, that's not really mentioned in Tanya okay um, and, and and the reason is like this let's imagine the following scenario let's imagine um, You really, really love somebody. Well, it's easier to use romantic love for this, okay? Let's say, imagine you really, really love somebody, but they're married to somebody else. Now what? What would be good for them? What might, in fact, they want, let's say what's good for them, what they want would be for you to do what? To not love them, to leave them alone, right? To get out of their life. Because you're just going to make their life more complicated, right? You're not helping their life, right? Okay. Does your love lead you to do that? So what are we seeing? Is that love itself doesn't really lead you to do things that the person wants, usually. There's some other emotion which is maybe mixed in with love. And if you can pull that emotion out of the love, right? Which we'll call that emotion care. So somewhere in love, right? So I have a desire to be close to somebody. Being close to a person entails some degree of caring about them. I can pull out the caring element and make that the thing that I really embrace, that I really get myself to feel, right? I can maybe free myself from my desire and then leave the person to live their life without me, right? But remember, the key element in love really is about desire. So in your experience if you got if you love somebody it has an element of caring for the person but that element is not the primary element the primary element is the desire and as long as that's the primary thing as long as you the primary thing is desire the desire to be close to a person doesn't lead itself to stay away from the person if that's what's good for them so what do we see is that love doesn't automatically translate to doing the things that they want or the things that are good for them Again, if I love somebody, I can use that as a basis to get there by what? By pulling out of the love, the sense of care and concern for them, and then really developing that experience kind of independently to the point that that experience I can, I've embraced so fully that I can use that to control my desire or maybe even free myself of my desire. Does that make sense? So, what is the answer? One this is another example of this is parents. Parents love their children. What is good for their children? Independence. Now, if we're talking about love, not as a catch-all phrase for just positive emotions and care, but love like actual desire, right? So you have a parent who really desires to be with, to be close to their child. does that lead them the desire to be close to their child? Does that lead them to grant their child more independence as they get older? or it actually makes it hard for the parent to let the child have independence. For instance, do you feel closer to someone when they agree with you or disagree with you? You should agree. So if I feel a strong desire to be close <clears throat> to my children, does that, that, that does, again, the desire to be close, does that, lend, does that lead me to sensing that they should develop their own opinions? even though their opinions may in fact end up disagreeing with mine? No, if I want to get to the place where I like, I am feeling something that gets me to feel like the importance of them developing their opinions, it wouldn't be so much be desire to be close, but it would be more care and concern for them. Right, so there's a difference here. Now I could pull that out of the experience of love, but like, I, that, that's kind of, an, there's a, you're shifting from one emotional experience to another. When Chassidus describes love, we're, we're speaking specifically about something which is is centered around desire. It's the dynamics of desire. Okay, does that make sense? So it happens to be that if I love my child and they want something and the wanting something is something that can easily see that fits with my desire to be close, then of course it leads me to it, right? But loving somebody and then doing what they want doesn't follow so strictly. And I'll use one more example where it's like, you know, where love can become totally corrupted, where what you love about the person isn't the person themselves, but some objectified sense of the person, in which case you could actually be, the 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 closeness you desire is actually contrary to their well being, right? So, like, love is not inherently good; it's not inherently bad. It's just it's desire. So, if that's the case, right? So, let, let's take an example. I love Hashem, and I want to be close to Hashem, right? Well, what if, what, 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 if, what if Hashem asked me to do something that to me feels like not being close to Hashem? My love for Hashem doesn't easily translate into that, right? So let's say, for instance, what's something that doesn't feel close to Hashem? So, <sighs> there is a mitzvah in the Torah um, to send out impure people from um, the the holy encampment, which practically speaking, what that means is um, that the Temple Mount and the Temple, if you're impure, you're not allowed to go there. Okay? Um, And let's go one step further. It's not just you're allowed to go there if you're imperial also can't partake of sacrificial offerings, even if you're not in the temple, okay? This down doesn't sound so bad. Now, let me just add in a few historical details. Um, Pesach is a major holiday in Judaism, yes? How is Pesach to be celebrated? No, you're supposed to go to the temple, Erev Pesach, bring a sacrifice, and then you sit with your family or extended family if there's enough, if there's, if there's too few of you, because it's arranged it's pure, and you sit and you have your seder over the sacrificial meat. Okay? What if you're impure? Do you get to participate in Pesach? Well, let's hope it works out. It doesn't really work out. If you're impure, do you get to participate in Pesach? So you love Hashem and you want to be close. You're like, yes, we're going to do this mitzvah and it's so amazing. right? And then, right? Hashem says, actually, you? I would feel more comfortable if like you didn't come. I prefer you not to participate in the Seder. This doesn't happen in our Seder because our Seder doesn't have those rules. But in, in Temple times, that's how it worked. How would you feel? Would you feel like, oh, I love Hashem. Of course I don't want to come to the Seder. You see what I mean? like, 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 there's a way in which, like, it's like, I, or, I, I, I like doing these activities because I think that these activities, like, are bringing me close to Hashem, and Hashem wants me to do it. But it's not really about what Hashem wants. It's about what I want. Because the minute Hashem doesn't want my mitzvah anymore, like, I'm getting very offended. Okay? Um, so, by the way, was this a common problem or an uncommon problem of people being impure before Pesach? Let's make a concrete example. Um, my second son was born the 10th of Nisan. So, let's imagine we were living in the times of Mashiach. What would that have meant? Mm-hmm. It would have meant that my wife could not have joined us for the Seder because she just given birth. That's right. Right. But I love Hashem, whatever He wants. It, it, it's up. Like, because love is about desire. If Hashem says, no, 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 no. Like it, so the simple fact that someone wants something of you and you desire them, those don't always line up. It's nice when they line up, right? By the way, you see this also with parents and little children. You're a parent. Your kid is playing. They're so cute. What do you feel? Do you want to just go over and hug them? Do they want to be hugged right now? No. They want to... They want to just, I'm playing with my Legos. Leave me alone. <laughs> Like it's not the case. It's not the case that if you desire to be close to somebody, you're automatically like you take their desires and their wishes really seriously. It's just not true. And so there's a way in which you kind of we find the areas where there's convenient overlap and we say, I'm I'm I I'm doing what you want because I love you, but it's not really true. Now, there is a kind of love that mentions in Tanya where the love, the sense of identification has gotten so absolute. That you kind of transcended the notion of desire, so that what they want is what you want, but that's not normal. Okay, the, 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 the Tanya says that that's t- to really feel like that, you would have to be Moshe. It says every Jew can imagine that every Jew has like a part of them that 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 may be true about them, and they should think about that. But to actually feel like I my my love for Hashem has, is so intense that I have achieved total identification with my beloved, so that what he wants is what I want. You're claiming that you are experiencing the same kinds of love that Moshe Beinu experienced. Now, which is kind of delusional, right? Now, is it fair to say that deep down on my soul, there may be some truth to that? Fine, that's fair to say, right? But not to say that you're actually experiencing that. Okay? Does that, that kind of love can exist, say, between parents and children, where, where the love is... is, is it's, because remember, desire is, about, it's, it's, the desire is about the desire for closeness, right? If, in theory, you could achieve a level of closeness of just like absolute identification with someone else, at which point what they want literally becomes. Okay. But that's like a very extreme kind of love. It's not a normal kind of love. So w- how does normal love lead to doing mitzvahs, right? Because it can't be, I love Hashem, so I do what He wants. That's just not really true. Unless I'm Moshe Rabbeinu, and that's not really true. So then what does it mean? I love Hashem, so I do mitzvahs. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, the idea is we have to go into what is a mitzvah. We often think of a mitzvah as something that Hashem commands us to do because it's important to Him for whatever reason. Um, The whatever reason is beside the point. Whether we think it's important to Him because it helps our spiritual development or it's good because of some spiritual thing to do with God, I don't really care. But like, the mitzvah is God says, you should do this because X, Y, and Z. Okay. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go out of the text completely. We're going to talk about what is a mitzvah according to Hasidus. And we understand what a mitzvah is according to Hasidus if you A, love Hashem, and B, have an awareness of what a mitzvah is, what, what you'll you see is that the love leads you naturally to doing mitzvahs, okay? What, A, is that you love Hashem, and B, you know what a mitzvah is. I don't mean, not, not, so it's not enough just to know that thing is a mitzvah. Remember last week we spoke about it, it's not just enough to know that that thing is forbidden, but you have to have a sense that it's an actual rupture with the reality of God. So here's going to do the similar thing. We have to have a sense of what a mitzvah actually is. It's not enough to know that the book says it's a mitzvah or that God commands it. There has to be some other sense of what a mitzvah really is. Okay. So we're going to do the following little game, okay? Um, I want everyone to pick a partner. Okay. And one partner is going to do the writing and the other partner is going to do the talking. Okay now pick the partner do the writing who has the best ability to transcribe because you are to transcribe what the other person said to the best of your ability if you're the speaking person y- you need to speak as naturally as possible so don't speak slower than you normally speak just okay. i'm gonna tell you here we go. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. The topic that you're going to speak to the other person about is why you like my note. Can you start? And you can start. What? You need to be able to read the handwriting. Why do you like my notes? Why do you like my Why do you like my yeah, I, like the, the race. I, yeah, I like the right, right. I, I think the mean, it's like are yeah, it's um, like are a place where they so like, like, you know, yeah. yeah. are yeah. to topics on just that, just I but I get like so Okay, stop. <laughs> Okay. All right. Now, if you were the one who was speaking, okay, I would like you to look at the handwriting as best as you can, okay? And I want you to look at the words and I want you to figure out why you used those words. Because I was what's important to realize is that what you said didn't have to be in those words, right? You could have used different words. (laughs) Why did you use those words? So, all those to things I like, had, like, why do you create? Software. Software. <laughs> why? Like, 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 what? Figure out why you use the words you use, why you use different words. So, the question is why? When you you Why do you use And i came out like that. like that. don't know. Okay, all right, I need two volunteers who did speaking, and I need their papers. (laughs) <laughs> what? No you know what I did. Today. Yeah, we, did race, so we, <laughs> we thought it was a race. So we could great. What? <laughs> we thought it was a race. So? I oh, know. It's just not the best. That's okay. <laughs> the class is not going to continue until I have two papers. Oh. There we go. All right. One volunteer. You're carrying me. You're just volunteering. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's fine. Yep. Oh, sorry. Okay, all right, let's start with a beautiful environment. So why did you use the word beautiful? Because there's a lot of beauty (laughs) in the experience here. So why didn't you use the word experience? Why did you say a beautiful experience instead of the environment? (laughs) Well, I may mean, have some, we just could to get down
1: everywhere. She just dumb, talk so much to say. Okay, so you but, use the, <laughs>
0: and, What was the second word? I no environment? Yeah, why did you use the word environment? Why'd um, you, why didn't you say experience because, or atmosphere? Sorry. <laughs> why didn't you use the word atmosphere? Synonym for um, environment. Because, A, that's the first word that came to my mind. Okay. B, I think that an environment is something that you have to create that doesn't just come naturally and it takes a lot of work. And I think okay. there's something more- I want you to start. Par- Did you actually think all of those thoughts before no, you chose the word no. environment? So are you absolutely sure that what you're telling me you is true or you're just making up a convincing story after the fact? a convincing story. Okay. No, not that I don't agree with what I wrote. I Could you agree with what you wrote? I'm not in any way saying you don't agree with what you wrote, right? But you observe that you did something that you did not think about ahead of time, right? Yeah. And now you're assuming that you had some like good justification for doing so, and trying to like backtrack and figure out what that is, right? Yes. Okay. Um, do you know why I use the word mentor? Yes. Why? Because that I actually thought about. Right. Because I truly believe that everyone here is given and is given the ability to give which is, I think, the best form of a mentor. That everyone is given the ability to go out into the world and be a leader, a mentor, and teach others what they're given here in this environment. So why didn't you just say a leader <laughs> and a teacher? Way. Why did you use one word, mentor? Um, you just right now used some synonyms. I think they mentor and both. So you were thinking about how to be concise in your language? <laughs> That's why mentor is at the end <laughs> Are you familiar with the Hebrew word Mashpiah? Yeah. Are you comfortable using it in sure. everyday speech? So, why didn't you use the Hebrew mashbia? Why did you use the English mentor? Maybe because maybe not everyone's comfortable with the word Because maybe not everyone's comfortable with the word Mashpiah. Okay. Are you again trying to come up with the backstory? No. Right. <laughs> sure, i just trying yep. to just. That's what would be right. um, like the Hebrew. This one blank. Oh, I, you I you think that's my that's <laughs> Sorry, I think really Okay. All right. Enjoy it. Okay. Here we go. Integrated. Oh no. Why did you use the word integrated? I don't know why. I... Did you even remember using the word integrated? No. Anyway. Okay. I like the honesty. What Sorry, about the word not the example. Holistic. Did you? you? Okay. Do you believe that you did use those words though? Yes. Okay. People on the internet are gonna love this. Okay. So you don't even remember using these words. I remember using them, but they were not thought about why those came out of my mouth. Could you come up with a good story as to why you? For sure. Okay, so which one do you want to attempt? Tra- Since we're in the realm of plausible fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I can make up for holistic. Okay, let's go for holistic. Because, like, for example, we have yoga tonight. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so it's like an association thing. No, it's just like between skills and knowledge, and that's a word that we always use in reference to the program. <laughs>
1: holistic. Yeah. Ah,
0: so like, okay. it's easy to use. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. At what I want you to appreciate here, what I want you to appreciate <laughs> is that there's a level of your psyche which I'm going to phrase it the following way is operating without your consent. <laughs> Right? Because when you were speaking, I mean you might have decided like you thought like I wanna I'm gonna talk about this, right? You had kind of a general sense of what you wanted to convey. And then just like some other part of your psyche just started throwing out vocabulary words. And then you're like, oh, that's an interesting word. I wonder why that part of me decided to do that. And that part of you is not willing to share why. So you have to come up with a plausible story as to why it would do that. Because it's obviously not completely random and arbitrary. Otherwise, the words that came out of your mouth wouldn't make any sense at all in context, right? So it's kind of like you're trying to, like, mind-read somebody else. Isn't that weird? Okay. Do you have reasons for the things you said? No. I mean, sometimes, but usually not. Not the exact wording. So then, no one really has the ability to be really thought out. That's right. Hmm. This is an important thing to be aware of. Mm -hmm. Okay. By the way, (laughs) a a a a a piece of advice: just when you get married, if your husband says something, never ask him why he said it. (laughs) Because if he tells you that that's why he said it, he's doing what you just did, Mm -hmm. which is like, I don't know why I said that. Let me go with a story which is plausible and makes me look reasonably good. I, I only, I only speak from my side. <laughs> <laughs> I assume it works both ways. Sure. Um, but yeah, just, just like, just, like, like it's better. It's it 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 it's it, 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 right. It, and, and by the way, this is not just this. This is, this is really cool. Speaking, but sometimes it's it's awful. So with doing things, but um, okay. So back to the actual topic at hand. So Kabbalah is full of symbolism. Okay? So in Kabbalah, there are 10 spheres. You might have heard of the 10 spheres? Okay. Your favorite, your favorite poster in this My world. favorite poster. It's not like a variety to really You know like, what, what I is, What is it competing with, the map of the time Tanya? My like, favorite name <laughs> I mean, is what you don't like. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you ask it? <laughs> it's arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. It's like if I were to make a if I were to make a, a a a flow chart of something that you didn't understand just make a chart of it and put it on the wall and say, "Well, well, there's the chart, of the flow chart of the thing you don't understand." Like seeing a picture of the flow chart doesn't really help you. You need someone to explain what everything means. So I can't compute it that way. <laughs> I like that. What? <laughs> the shark I'm 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 conflicted about. Especially with the transparent fins. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> What's a shark? Like what do you do with no, that's what is that? the other. It's a fin, it's but it's in the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> people on the internet are totally lost now. Okay. So, um, so one of the spheres is called Kesser. If you speak the other version of Hebrew, you call it Keter. But that's not the version I speak, so you just have to deal with Kesser. Okay? Can someone tell me what Kesser is? The highest, level. Well, the highest level. I mean, that's only if you're looking in one direction. If you're looking in the other direction, it's the lowest level, right? Right? Well, Kabbalah, always remember, Kabbalah, there's always another way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Right? I want someone to, like, take the chart around one day and just, like... Because, that's the way the Kabbalah is from the other view. But okay, um, no. But what is Kesser? <coughs> this is a trick question. It's a word. Kesser is a word. Huh. Yeah, that's what it is, right? Now, the word—it's a Hebrew word. The word signifies something. What does the word Kesser signify? If you know Hebrew, you'll be able to answer this. A crown. A crown. By the way, crown is also a word in English, which signifies the same thing as the Hebrew word. kesser, Kesse, right? Also, the Yiddish word kroyn. <laughs> I'm sure there's a German word that more or less sounds like crown that also <laughs> means the same thing. Anyone here speak German? Okay. Just assuming if it's crown in English and kroyn in Yiddish, it's probably something similar in German. Okay. Fine. Anyone speak any other languages? Yeah. What language? Afri-trans. French. Afri-trans. What, what, what is the word that signifies the same thing in French? Okay. Crane. What? Crane. Crane? What language is that? Afrikaans. Afrikaans. Well, it's Dutch. Dutch is a Germanic language. It makes sense. Okay. Okay, so you've got a word. The word signifies something, right? Okay. Now, why is one of the spheres named with a word that signifies, you know, a piece of metal that you stick on the... King or queen's head. That is weird, right? Do you want to know the answer? Is the crown part of you? Like, if you're wearing a crown, is that a part of you? No. Right? You end like right there. Actually, I end right here. It'd be an extension of. Oh, it's not an extension. Like, see here, you know, watch. Boop, boop. It's not an extension of me. It's something you put on top. Right? This is an extension of me. Right? So is this. I have a few other ones, but you get the point, right? We have extensions of ourselves. A crown is not an extension of yourself. It's something else that goes on top of you. Right? It's something that's not you. Right? Okay. The part of you that decided your vocabulary, what's the name of that part of you that decided the vocabulary you would use? The brain. In Kabbalah language. Keser. Your keser. Because it's, if we're gonna say the you now, we're gonna talk about the subjective awareness and experience, right? What lies beyond your subjective awareness and experience? That other, that other you that you don't really know why it did what it did and you're trying to come up with a plausible story of why it chose the word holistic and integrate and beautiful, right? But you can never know for sure because it's kind of like beyond you. It's other than you, even though it, in some kind of other sense, it's not someone else. So in the way that the crown isn't the person, it's the, it sits above the person, that, that part of the psyche sits above the rest of the psyche and is called Tessa. So the word signifies a crown, and the crown is a symbolic representation for an idea. And the idea describes a phenomenon, which is that there's part of your psyche which is beyond you. Does that make sense? Okay, now this is this is I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but is there ever a point at which like you do enough? like really thinking about yourself where you truly become conscious of that part of yourself that is making the decision about your vocabulary? Like there's stuff you're not consciously aware of in yourself, right? But you can like do like psychoanalysis or kinds of meditative therapies or all sorts of, you know, or, or reflection or all sorts of things and you can become more consciously aware of things, right? Is there something you can do to get to the point where you can like actually... Be consciously aware of that part of yourself that is just deciding the vocabulary as you speak? Or does that just remain eternally beyond? That's hypothetical, because you could never know for sure, but think about it. You can at least try. I don't know if you can actually That part of you, what, what Kabbalah says, that part of you is something you can never become aware of. You can be aware, you can have an inferred awareness of it, Either There is clearly a part of you that was selecting the vocabulary, right? But it's kind of like um, you're figuring out something by inferring from other things. You never have any direct awareness of that part of yourself, ever. Does that make sense? Okay. Now let's move to some uncomfortable things. Why does a person do tshuva? Tshuva being that before they were living their life um, disregarding the centrality of Hashem and now Hashem is central in how they're living their life and making decisions. Why? I mean, you are clearly aware that you're having one mode of living or the other mode of living, right? But why? Do you know what happens usually if you ask people why they started doing tshuva? They do a very similar thing when you ask them why they selected this particular word when they were speaking, which is they assume there's some kind of re- rationale behind it, and then they try and come up with a story. story which seems reasonable and plausible. Why do some people believe in God and some people don't believe in God? and i don't mean i don't i don't mean why some people like happen to be in a particular group i mean like some people like really do have a, 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 an unshakable conviction that god is real and some people just completely lack that altogether it turns out that there's a tremendous amount of ourselves which is opaque which is inaccessible to our own awareness and what's equally um, interesting and Quite disturbing is that that has a very large influence on how we live our life after all whether or not you um believe in god don't believe in god whether or not god is important to you or not important to you has huge ramifications about how you're going to make sense of everything else the decisions you're going to make right how you're going to experience everything else in your consciousness So it's kind of like, even though you have all these different parts of your psyche, there's one part that's just completely beyond, and it kind of seems to be running the show. Make sense? Okay. When you do something that you really did rationally think through first, is that a more or less authentic expression of who you really are than the stuff that you didn't actually think through first? And especially the things that you could never think through first. Right. less authentic. What? It's less authentic. It's less authentic. Why? About it. it's not really you doing it, it's you doing it for how someone perceives you. So, right, or, 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 or that could be one thing, it could be that, could, or it could be something else, it could be because you, it's a mean command, <coughs> right? It's, but it's, it's justified by something that isn't you. So, when, 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 when Kabbalah speaks about the idea of Chachma, which is the one that goes under Keser, Chachma is the idea that things have to be sensible. Things have to make sense. Things have to be justifiable in some way, shape, or form. That begins in our chachma. That begins in our awareness. Which means, um, if I like, have a really good reason why I think it's important to um, shop at this particular grocery store, that opinion of mine is not really an a, a, a authentic manifestation of who I am. On the other hand, if um, you do something and I don't like it and I have no rational reason for not liking it and and even if, and this be, you have to be careful because, because sometimes you might not be aware of yourself, right? and it's the kind of thing that no matter how much I reflect and how much psychoanalysis I do and how much reflection and meditation, whatever, it ultimately stays opaque to me as to why that bothers me, then what does that say that that's coming from? What is that manifesting? Something very deep and authentic within myself. Does that make sense? Okay. Kabbalah says that a mitzvah is... the the flowing down of hashem's kesser meaning what there's this authentic truth of who hashem is and what is happening when you are doing a mitzvah that's reaching you okay can you repeat that a, a mitzvah is the flowing down to you, to whoever's doing the mitzvah of Hashem's kaseh. So, right, think about those things right, in our lives that are coming from that part of ourself that is opaque to us that we can never really know. And think about not filtering those things, right? not keeping them inside, letting them just come out, and sharing them with someone else. Would you say that that's a very deep kind of closeness? The stuff that you cannot even rationalize about yourself ever, right? It's beyond, right? It's not you you haven't paid enough awareness. You're not it's not that you're not enough aware enough about yourself, right? That's not the issue. If it's something you're not aware enough, then that's what's called the hidden chachma. You could become aware of it. It's something beyond your it's beyond your awareness. It's beyond it's not something you could be aware of. And yet it's it's part of you. It's a very deep part of you. And when it comes out, right, that's very I'll use this word vulnerable. How comfortable would you be sharing the, that with somebody? Right? Those two kinds of things can be very dense. In other words, to put it very simply, how, would, how comfortable would you be um, telling somebody, not in a way of being defensive, but in a way of like just being open and honest, that certain things really, they just really mean something to you, and certain things really bother you, and you don't know why, and you never will know why. But you know that when you, but, but that's just, that's the truth about you. That's not the kind of thing you just share with everybody, right? When Hashem tells you to, to, to light a Shabbos candle, you know what he's telling you? He's telling you when you light a Shabbos candle, I will share that Kesser with you, I will share that part of myself with you at that moment. Now if you are madly in love with Hashem and he says, you know on Friday afternoon, if you light a candle um i i i will i will i will be I will be with you from this place from that level of myself from the level of myself that so to speak he even he cannot rationalize and justify who he is right that my my being with you comes from that level of depth that level of of not needing any justification. If you love Hashem that much, would you want to? Would you want a moment like that? Would it really matter what the physical activity that is the like garb that that takes place in? Would it matter whether it's a can- lighting a candle or dancing around seven times or you know shaking a lulav or doing a handstand? Would it make a difference? Because what is the mitzvah? The mitzvah is not the thing you are doing. The mitzvah is that. That, that openness that Hashem is having with you. Which, by the way, your soul can feel. How sensitive you are is another issue. But the soul can feel it. Now, if that's what a mitzvah is, right? So, so man, I'm deeply in love with someone. I'm I, I passionate about being close to them and they tell me, tomorrow, I want to just spend time and I want I want to be really open with you. I want to just really take down the layers and I want to just Show you who I am, even in a, on a level that that even I can't make sense of Does it follow naturally that you would like the love would lead you to, to be there on time <laughs> right? Okay a mitzvah is when we say that a mitzvah is the will of Hashem, will is just the translation of. The Hebrew word Rutzen which is Rutzen is the, the the other word that's used to kind of describe the psychological corollary to, to what we mean by Kesser but the thing is rutzen is not is not really so much a desire it's the thing that that exerts its influence over all of us over our entire being and it, it really is us it's really voluntary it's really it's really willful it's really a manifestation of who we are and yet it's completely inscrutable we have no idea what who on that level who we really are and why we're really doing what we're doing and the best we can do is come with a plausible story that may or may not be true. And a mitzvah is where Hashem says, let's drop the plausible story like, that just felt right. This is just, this, this comes from me. And if you love somebody, then, then you want to be close, and that's, a mitzvah is the closest you could ever be to Hashem. So it's not the mitzvah is making him happy. Do you understand? Like it's, not, yeah. it's really important for me to light candles. Please light the candle. That's not what we're saying. So in, in in that sense, who are you doing the mitzvah for? Are you doing the mitzvah for you or are you doing the mitzvah for Hashem? Nope. nope. Hashem. Nope. Your desire. What? If you have a desire to be close to somebody, right? For your desire. Right. It's to fulfill your desire to be close. But your desire to be close entails a sense of how you belong to, together, right? So it's not really for you. It's not really for Hashem. It's for... Us. Us. I'm doing the mitzvah so that we can be together in the deepest possible way. In a way that goes beyond, and this is what the thing goes beyond Hashem's chachma, Hashem's rationalizing and explaining things. Which, by the way, means if you love Hashem and someone asks you what's the value in the mitzvah, you wouldn't really be able to answer them. Does it make sense? Why you're 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 connect. You have a desire to be with him, and Hashem is being with you in a place that goes beyond his rationalizing and justifying things as well. So like, it's a state where where you don't need you don't you, a Jew who's feeling this kind of love doing mitzvah doesn't feel the need to justify that experience of doing the mitzvah. They don't feel the need to defend their Judaism. And their Judaism becomes inte- extremely private, extremely personal. that make sense? That's what it means to love Hashem and do a mitzvah Is that something easy to achieve? No. No. So we're we going to talk about going forward what are the rest of us supposed to do? <laughs> Thank, you so much. Thank you Thank you. And don't believe all the stories you tell yourself about yourself. Because what makes sense to you at one stage in your life is age, you know what you realize? Looking back on it...